It's Thursday, February 24th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Russia continues to make moves for a full-scale invasion of Ukraine, with reports that troops are ready to go. In the meantime, the U.S. is considering tougher sanctions and even going a step further with export control methods that could keep Russia from obtaining U.S. and foreign-made tech. This would degrade industrial production in Russia by keeping things like commercial electronics, semiconductors, and aircraft parts out of their hands. Alexandra Alper, White House reporter at Reuters, joins us for more. Next, new research shows that everything we see could be from 15 seconds in the past. Our eyes and brains create an illusion of stability so we don't feel dizzy or nauseated. Instead of analyzing every single visual snapshot, we perceive an average of what we saw in the past 15 seconds. Caroline Delbert, contributing editor at Popular Mechanics, joins us for what this new research says. Finally, a feel-good story about a community coming together to help without even asking why. Claire Rowan's 16-year-old son, Will, depends on a specific powdered infant formula as his only source of food. The problem happened when the FDA recalled that formula. That led to Rowan scrambling to find a replacement and posting to online groups where the community took it upon themselves to track down more. Sydney Page, reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for how everyone came together to help. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. There's no middle ground here. Calling for both sides to de-escalate only gives Russia a pass. Russia is the aggressor here. Joining us now is Alexandra Alper, White House reporter at Reuters. Thanks for joining us, Alexandra. Thanks for having me. Well, the situation in Ukraine remains tense. American officials are saying that a full-scale invasion is imminent. Um, You know, we're just kind of uh, waiting to see what President Putin is going to be doing. He has all the troops that he needs in place for full-scale invasion, and uh, everybody's just kind of waiting for the shoe to drop on that front. We saw President Biden on Tuesday file some sanctions against uh, some Russian banks, some oligarchs, trying to hinder them, obviously, and uh, maybe force Putin's hands, try to do something. They kind of fell with a thud. It didn't really seem like they were going to make a lot of impact. They were reserving more serious sanctions to come as well as things also escalate. But Alexandra, you wrote a piece talking about how there's other things that Biden could do to punish them, basically cutting them off from technology and other things like that. So tell us a little bit more about that, these export controls. The United States has already in place for a long time export controls, and the goal is really just to make sure very high-level U.S. technology doesn't get in the hands of adversaries and potentially be used in, you know, a military scenario against us or against, you know, our allies. And uh, we already have a lot of export controls in place against Russia. So initially, when they had threatened that, there was some question about, you know, how much damage could be done via export controls. But the measures that we've learned about, I guess there are five key pieces to it, seem like they are pretty broad in their approach. Again, like there will be details, there may be some exceptions and exemptions. But as I understand what they've at least prepared an initial package that, you know, could be tweaked or have exceptions added, it seems pretty, pretty tough, pretty substantive. And so how do these work out? I mean, there's a list of goods that require U.S. licenses before suppliers can send them out to Russia. So the thought is that they would broaden that list of things and then the U.S. is just going to deny all those licenses, basically. So nothing will be able to be sent there. 
one of the first measures is there's something called the CCL, the Commerce Control List, and it has basically all the items that we control when exported from U.S. suppliers out to certain countries. And there's a lot of items on there that already have controls for Russia. But this would do two key things to that list. One, there's basically categories three through nine, which includes everything from aircraft parts to electronics, telecoms equipment, maritime items, even computers. All the stuff in those categories would now have a license requirement to Russia. And that means that if a U.S. supplier wanted to ship it to a Russian company or a Russian person, it would have to seek, you know, prior consent, seek a license from the Commerce Department. And the second change that means that a lot of stuff will be denied is that the Commerce Department is going to change its policy for reviewing all those license applications from whatever it is currently, because each one is different, to a policy of denial, which basically means that only in rare cases would that item get approval to be sent to Russia. So those are the first two pieces. Obviously, you know, this is all an effort to further squeeze Russia on this whole situation. You know, hopefully they can knock it off in Ukraine. But, you know, reports have been out there saying that Russia has been preparing for a long time to fend off these sanctions, other types of things like this, like what we're talking about right now, these export controls. So they've been in preparation mode for it. And, you know, I guess the U.S. is uh, targeting these types of things, which would really uh, hamper their industrial production in a a few key sectors. They're trying not to, I guess, punish the Russian people or, or, you know, things like that. So uh, how much effect would these have on Russia? One further point before I answer that, I'll just say the really dramatic sweeping piece of this is something called the FDPR rule, where they will say anything made in the world, even though it has no U.S. components in it, no U.S. intellectual property in it, if it's made with an American tool or in an American factory or with an American machine, that is now going to be subject to U.S. export control. So (laughs) if you have a phone in South Korea and every 100% of it is made without any U.S. components and no U.S. intellectual property, but a U.S. tool was used in making it, now that company needs to get a license from the Commerce Department before it can ship it to Russia. So that's really sweeping. That makes it much harder for Russians to get stuff from other parts of the world. The big question is, like you said, you know, is there going to be compliance? Are we going to see countries like China, for example, you know, really making having their their companies go to the United States to ask permission for something that really looks like a transaction that involves, you know, just Russia and China? And um, there was a really great piece in The Washington Post a little while ago about a drone that was found uh, that had flown from Russia over Ukraine, and they actually looked at the pieces in it. And it turned out a lot of companies, you know, had shipped these pieces, like German companies trying to comply with export controls, thought they were sending it to like a teacher's group in Russia. And it turned out it was going to end up being in this drone with with military ends. So there's a, a very big question there about compliance and whether it would work. Alexandra Alpert, White House reporter at Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Our brains basically form a first impression and don't change it dramatically unless they need to. And that's both to smooth the picture and it's also just to kind of save resources, the same as with your computer. Joining us now is Caroline Delbert, contributing editor at Popular Mechanics. 
Thanks for joining us, Caroline. Thank you for having me. I want to talk about this interesting story that new research is claiming. Basically, everything we see is about from 15 seconds in the past. Now, this new experiment that these uh, researchers did say that uh, our, you know, our vision is kind of comprised of images of these past 15 seconds. It really uh, helps smooth out the images, the subtle changes and inputs that we get. And, you know, it could help us from, you know, not basically throwing up from all of the sensory input kind of thing. And, uh, and they had some uh, interesting uh, uh, experiments that they did, a YouTube video, which I looked at and I failed miserably at. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Caroline, tell us a little bit about this. Well, so this research is pretty new. I believe it just appeared in the journal Science Advances. And basically, it's it's like what you said. We are constantly looking at a ton of different things. And if we just saw raw input into our eyeballs, we would get dizzy. We would feel disoriented. It's like if you use your phone camera and take video without the smoothing turned on, it's very jittery. It's, you know, you're moving through the world. You're not perfectly smooth and neither are your eyes. So in this research, they asked participants to watch a 30 second clip. And in that clip, it's either a young face becoming an older face or an older face becoming a young face. And by doing that, they can capture the way that our brains form a static picture, that they, our brains basically form a first impression and don't change it dramatically unless they need to. And that's both to smooth the picture and it's also just to kind of save resources, the same as with your computer. So there's an analogy here. This happens less and less, but when our videos used to buffer a lot more, when they would break into blocks, you could sometimes see that just one part of your video was actually updating at a time. And it was like people's faces or whatever was the most detailed and the background would stay kind of static. Yeah. And it's the same thing where it's just trying to save resources. And if you don't need to update your picture, why would you bother updating your picture? It's still good information as far as our brains are concerned. Going back to that, uh, that video, that YouTube video that the researchers posted up, I didn't notice those subtle changes. You know, they say it's two identical twins and then it keeps asking you, is this person older now? Is this person getting older? And it isn't Mm -hmm. until after that they show you with the kind of time lapse, how much they are aging that you see it. The person ends up aging 10 years in that video. And it's not until you really are told what's happening that you do notice that the bags under the eyes change, the nose changes slightly, the lips change because they flattened out a little bit. But other than that, you're kind of, you, you see the, the image moving, but it still seems like, oh, maybe they aged a year or two. And it, and it ended up being 10 years. It was pretty amazing. Yeah, I thought the same thing when I watched that video, because just for listeners, the video shows a young child at first, who I would guess is like 10 to 12 years old. And then the older face is only like in their mid 20s. So it's a big developmental time in terms of, uh, like you said, your facial features actually kind of shifting around and growing and changing. And, And then when they unveil the different face at the end, it is very dramatic. And they did a control version of the experiment as well, where they just showed people the static face and had them estimate just what age they thought it was. And um, they use that as the uh, control to judge the rest of the data against. So they call this the illusion of visual stability. And, uh, you know, I guess there's other um, different things that kind of how, you know, explain how our, our, our eyes and our brains work, change blindness, inattentional blindness, you know, but this theory, I guess they also call serial dependence. So th- these are the, the different theories that they're working with. 
Yeah, serial dependence is a cool idea. I think about it like anybody who's taken a calculus class. One of the fundamental things that you learn in calculus is an angle that touches a curve. You're looking at a line that changes over time. It's touching this curve and the line changes over time. And that is the derivative of the equation. So it's like a fundamental thing in calculus. It's the most important thing, arguably. And it's very similar to this idea of serial dependence because you're looking at a point in time and you're thinking, what does this rely on in the past? What is this moving toward into the future? Because it's helping to create a continuously smoothed experience that gives us this illusion of just a beautiful, settled world where things aren't constantly moving around and we know what we know and we can observe things. There's actually another interesting video that the researchers shared that basically shows the equivalent of a uh, like a mouse pointer kind of zipping around on a screen and then shows you a very tight focus of what you would actually see if you were moving around in real time with that pointer. And it is dizzying almost right away. <laughs> it's dramatic how different yeah. it is versus how our eyes really work. Caroline Delbert, contributing editor at Popular Mechanics. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. At least a friend of a friend posted in some local group who it pinged someone else. And somehow my friend from my old neighborhood drove to Stafford yesterday. And so Jill drove to Stafford and got two cans. Joining us now is Sydney Page, reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Sydney. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I wanted to bring you on to talk about this feel-good story that you wrote up. and really does show that uh, a lot of people do care about others in this world. This is a story about Claire Rowan and her 16-year-old son, Will. Um, he uh, has a, a, a few different ailments that uh, don't really allow him to eat normal food. He's basically allergic to all sorts of foods. And how he's been surviving is on powdered infant formula. He has a permanent feeding tube, and this is how he goes. This is his everyday life right now. But just very recently, the FDA recalled a bunch of these powdered infant formulas, and it ended up being all the stuff that he normally eats. It set his mom on a mad dash to find replacements, to find any available cans of this infant formula that he might be able to eat. And uh, it ended up showing, you know, a lot of people showed interest in this and really made an effort to help out with all of it. So, Cindy, tell us a little bit about Claire Rowan and her son, Will. Yeah, so I think you nailed it in terms of the background of the story. Essentially, she awoke to a news alert last Friday morning ahead of the long weekend, which I think added to the stress of all of it because it was harder to get in touch with retailers and places that might have some cans that were not involved in the recall. But essentially, yeah, she found out that the food her son relies on as his sole source of nourishment. He really does not consume anything other than this except occasionally white rice is what she told me. Uh, She found out that all 58 cans that they had in their household were part of this recall. So there was absolutely no food for her son. And in a desperate uh, attempt to solicit some help, uh, she posted on her Facebook page and was stunned to see this outpouring of support from people in the community and far beyond the community uh, who went to their own local supermarkets scouring for cans that were not involved in the recall, who connected with neighbors in various listers and groups really searching for this woman, many of whom did not know her at all. 
So it turned out to be this kind of incredible team effort, if yeah. you will. And I think one of the one of the things that Claire said to me, which really resonated, is that nobody asked what was wrong with him. People were not questioning why this 16-year-old boy was dependent on infant formula. Their response was, what can we do? They were much more concerned about mobilizing and helping him and rallying to support this family than they were about... why this teenager was dependent on an infant formula. So that was a touching part of it, too. And we'll get to it in a little moment. But what she found out with all these Facebook groups is that there's a lot of other people that are in the very same situation where their children can't eat anything else but this stuff. So uh, Will was eating uh, or, you know, uh, taking in cans of Elicare Jr. This is an amino acid based hypoallergenic formula. So obviously set well with all of his different uh, ailments. But uh, the recall contained, uh, you know, certain lots of Similac, Alimentum, and this Elicare formula. So that's a lot of different ones, uh, you know, for other people, too, around the country. And uh, what happened with Will, he stopped growing at age seven. And they found out that this was the only way that would give him enough nutrients and sustenance to be able to to grow, basically. Yes, exactly. So he he stopped growing. They call it a failure to thrive in medicine. So that was sort of his diagnosis at that age. Um, and then he tested out tube feeding, which was a tremendous success. He switched to a long-term feeding tube, and he's been growing amazingly. Uh, his mother said he grew four inches in the past year, which is remarkable. And yeah, he's doing really well. So he completely depends on a feeding tube, as do so many others. Um, and as you said, one of the things that Claire learned, of course, is that her family's not the only family affected by this. So she actually really turned things around once she had enough supply for her son and subsequently went and donated all additional cans that she received through this sort of online initiative. And it sounded very dire, too, when she did go on to these Facebook groups and uh, other pages. You know, she said our choices are no food or likely anaphylaxis. You know, that's how bad it was for Will. And so now let's talk about some of these other great moments that happened in the community. As you mentioned, she ended up donating a lot of stuff because His doctors did uh, prescribe like an alternative food that he can try. Uh, You know, he was a little older. There's a lot of families that can't really adapt so easily. Uh, You know, a lot younger kids that have to go into hospital settings to try new foods. So that's what she did when she got enough uh, for her son. She started donating these and kind of made this little exchange group where people would donate some to her. She'd uh, match them with other people so they can get the formula, too. So it ended up becoming this uh, really nice community exchange. Exactly. Yeah, it really was this network of parents that were kind of working together with Claire in the middle (laughs) unintentionally, but she really was sort of the midpoint for all of these people who were both offering up formula and who needed formula desperately. Um, I interviewed a woman in Alexandria who has a four-year-old son who desperately, desperately needed formula. They too had recently received their monthly shipment, all of which could not be used. Um, and she, it was devastating. She told me she put her son to bed hungry on Friday night. Um, and that was heartbreaking for the parents and for the child. And Claire showed up first thing Saturday morning on her day off with a can of six pieces of formula. So she really was able to feed this child and carry this child over for the next few days at the very least. Sydney Page, reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.